we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the cross tonight, that we are forgiven because you gave it all. Thank you, Jesus. I am changed. Grace, beautiful grace. Grace, glorious grace. At the cross, you call it finished. Grace, beautiful grace. Grace, beautiful grace. At the cross, all of my sin 
praise Him. Father, we thank You for grace. We thank You for the second chances. We thank You, God, that when You looked upon us, You were moved to compassion. You had grace upon our lives. God, we thank You that we're covered. God, we don't have to be covered by sin and shame any longer. But the covering of grace removes all of that. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And Pastor Cecil's last couple years on this earth, this became one of his favorite songs. And um, I was supposed to preach this message two weeks ago on Sunday night. Uh, but Pastor Cecil always was predictably unpredictable and uh, decided to go into eternity and all of our schedules got changed around because he did the unpredictable and uh, I was in the middle of writing this sermon and I uh, got almost completed with it and uh, he passed and thought what better message um, for him to leave this world in the middle of preparing all that was going on that week uh, than grace one of his favorite messages was about grace. And so we stand here tonight because of grace. If you have your Bibles, open up to Titus chapter 2. We'll start with verse 11. And uh, as we are in the next 30 days of honoring Pastor Cecil, if everybody would just stand uh, with us to honor the reading of God's Word, I want to share one quick story just to give you a glimpse of Pastor Cecil and maybe uh, a not-so-innocent Pastor Cecil story as well. Uh, Pastor Cecil loved to be a winner. Uh, he did not like to lose. And uh, so they were at some event when he was uh, younger and earlier on in his ministry, and they had all these uh, boys around. It was a boys' event. They were down um, in, in Alabama somewhere, I believe it was, and uh, they were doing frog races. Has anybody ever done a frog race before? I haven't either. We had cars by that time, and we raced cars. But uh, So one of the popular things to do um, was take their frogs and, I guess, sit them on something and let them go race. Well, uh, Pastor Cecil, like I said, didn't want to lose, so he took a box of BBs and fed to all the other frogs without everybody else looking. And so uh, his frog was the only one that didn't have BBs in it. And so his frog was winning every other the race, and they got to the end of the races and picked the frogs up by their legs, and out came these BBs, and Pastor Cecil won. <laughs> so he was disqualified. Qualified, but he loved to love to win, and so uh, we we celebrate him tonight. And um, yes, there was something that he might not have done that was always right, and so he he raced frogs uh, <laughs> unethically or something like that. But um, <laughs> Titus chapter two, verse eleven: For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You may be seated. Um, what is grace? As I said this morning, as Christians, we should be all about grace. We should be about grace in our life from every aspect. I believe the average believer in their heart uh, has an understanding for what grace is. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. Favor from God, basically, that you ain't done a thing to get. Amen? Grace is not contingent upon our performance. Meaning that we don't get grace because we are good. We don't get it because of the things that we do, the things that we are in our lives. It's not based upon any merit of ours or anything that we have done or are going to. It, grace solely comes from the Father above. And I love this because in Christianity you typically have these two camps. The religious that view grace is earned and then the heathens that view grace cannot be forfeited. Titus 2.11 says, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. What does this mean? This is referring to Jesus, that Jesus has appeared bringing salvation for all people. As we talked about last week, Jesus appeared and uh, Jesus appeared to the earth splitting time in two. Who has ever done that before? That split time literally in two between B.C. and A.D. No one can say that they have done that. See, Jesus, he appeared. Walking the face of the earth. The fact that Jesus was born, lived, died, and rose again is an undeniable fact referenced both by biblical and secular uh, scholars. 
See, the question is, what are we going to do with the knowledge of grace? And we must ask ourselves, what was the point of his appearing? Well, the scripture tells us in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, it was to bring salvation for all people. Jesus is the grace of God. And how did this salvation come about? It didn't just magically appear to us or it didn't come without sacrifice. It came through the brutal crucifixion of Christ Jesus. Now, there are a lot of ways to die. And how many of you have ever thought of ways you don't want to die? Anybody ever thought of a way that you don't want to die? Me. Drowning is at the top of that list for me. I don't want to dr- die by drowning. I don't want to die by getting bit by a shark either. I, I, we, if we had to have a checklist of options for us to die, right? I think probably two um, that would be at the top of our, our list are quick and painless. Right? If we had a way to choose that we had to die, it would be quick and painless. Definitely not being crucified at the hands of people who love pain, the Romans, who love suffering, and happen to hate you as well. That's not a good situation to be in. That they're choosing your fate, they're choosing, well, God really chose their fate, but they're the ones that are there choosing the fate for you. You see, the grace of God didn't just appear, and salvation didn't just happen. It was a very intentional, very missional, and very painful death. It was a very painful death sacrifice. So the so Christ's death completely annihilates both of these camps of Christians. Because if we can earn grace, Christ died for no reason. Amen. If we can earn grace by the things that we do, by our list of all of our good deeds Monday through Saturday, then Christ died for no reason. But if we use the grace of God to live however we want, we don't understand the reality of the price of grace. Amen. If we use grace to live however we want, saying that "Ah, Jesus will forgive us because of grace, then we do not understand the reality of the nails that went in Christ's hands. We do not understand the reality of the spear that went through Christ's side. We do not understand the reality of the whip that went across his back and shredded his back into shreds. We do not understand the reality of the crown of thorns that went down and sunk down into his skull. We do not understand the reality of blood and water filling his lungs to where he suffocates because he cannot breathe anymore. We do not understand the reality of him being beaten with rods and the beard being pulled out. That's what grace was pur- that's how grace was purchased. See, it came with a very lofty and a very high price. The doctrine of grace that pertains to God's activity rather than to his nature. See, while grace is part of God's nature, grace is more evident in how he deals with mankind. See, a person can have a gracious nature, but we see it exhibited in how they deal with other people. Let's face it, we've all encountered people who say they are Christians, and we know that they don't act a thing like it. Amen? We all have this holy stereotype of what a Christian should be. They say that they are spirit-filled, and we often wonder what kind of spirit are they filled with. They say, oh, I I live the spirit-filled life, and I'm thinking, is that Jim Bean, or what kind of spirit you got going on? Because that definitely ain't the Holy Spirit inside of your life. We all have seen those people and encountered those people. It's the spirit of Boaz's cousins that Pastor preached about a while back. Do I need to remind you of some of those names? (laughs) See, God teaches us. To live out grace in our life. And this is what we see with God. We see his divine nature revealed in his interactions with mankind. Listen to this and it's going to pop up on the screen. Grace is the dimension of divine activity that enables God to confront human indifference and rebellion with an an inexhaustible, I can't say that word, capacity to forgive and to bless. Think of that. Grace is the dimension of divine activity that enables God to confront our indifference, our brokenness, our rebellion with an inexhaustible capacity to forgive and to bless us. See, the Bible is filled and history is filled from beginning to end with grace. Exodus 34 says that God is merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love and and, and faithfulness. Grace is the free unmerited favor of God on our lives. Grace through divine initiative 
Human alienation from God is turned by him into a state of unmerited acceptance that opens the way for reconciliation and redemptive usefulness. See, grace exists from the garden to the fall. From the sin of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to Moses, who was a murderer, to David, the adulterer, uh, adulterer to Israel, who was always unfaithful. And Hosea appears on, this, on the time, timeline as the first prophet of grace. That shows the gracious nature of God to Peter, the denier, and Thomas, the doubter. Grace exists to Paul, the chief of sinners who murdered or stood at the feet of those who were murdering the Christian saints. See, grace exists to you and to me. Grace is not a license to sin, but instead it's a path from the cross in which forgiveness, mercy, and love flows to us. See, it's a, it's a rough path. It's a, it's a tough path. It's a hard path. The Via Dolorosa was not an easy path to climb up. It was not easy being mocked and jeered a week after you were praised and glorified in the same streets. It was a very rough path, a very brutal path that Jesus walked up to the Skull Hill. And it's where forgiveness, mercy, and love flows forth. What does grace do? Grace, it positions us for success. Not for failure, but for success. See, grace, it saves us. It instructs us, and it empowers us. Titus 2.11 says, for the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation for all people. See, Jesus appeared to bring salvation for all people. It didn't matter what your socioeconomical makeup was. It didn't matter what your color of skin was. It didn't matter if you were pagan or if you were uh, a Gentile or if you were Jewish. He looked to all of those and had compassion on people. The Bible says even when he went away to mourn, after John the, uh, John was, John, yeah, John the Baptist was beheaded. I was making sure I had my person right. After John the Baptist was beheaded, he went away to go and mourn his death. And he goes up to a mountainside and sees thousands of people waiting there like sheep without a shepherd. And the Bible says he had compassion on them. In the midst of his mourning, in the midst of his grief, he was motivated by grace. See, Jesus appeared to bring salvation for all people. And we believe that though originally created good, that man sent. And ushered evil and death into this world, both physical and spiritual. And this is where we find ourselves at today. The world is an absolute mess. You see, I don't understand why we continue to teach the theory of evolution in our schools. Because with the theory of evolution, things should be progressively getting better, right? I mean, that's the basis of evolution. But I mean, when I flip on CNN, I don't see things getting better. I don't see mankind evolving. I don't see less wars. I see more. What I see is scripture and prophecy being fulfilled so i think we should get some science text from somewhere else amen and this is where we find ourselves at today something has gone terribly wrong it's fractured this world but the beautiful thing is the story doesn't end there because of grace we believe that each person can have restored fellowship with god through christ jesus see this christianity thing it's just not some brilliant drawn up exit plan for the church it's not just a comfort thing for those who are weak and broken and mourning among us no but it was a brutal painful pricey plan of God reconciling a hurting broken world to its creator that's what grace is about that's what we believe that's what salvation it was God's plan of reconciling his creation that he loved to himself through a very painful and brutal sacrifice on the cross 2,000 years ago and why do we need grace because grace saves Ephesians 2 8 says for by grace you have been saved through faith this is not of your own doing what do we say an unmerited uh, uh, thing it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast what does grace save us from? It saves us from ourselves. It saves us from ourselves. How many of you know that we need to be saved from ourselves? The reason why we're in a mess is because of us, right? 
Nobody else created the mess that we're in. We created that, and we need to be saved from ourselves because if we could take us or take me out of the scenario, probably life would have been a lot better. (laughs) If we would have taken a lot of the things that we would have done out of the scenario, life would have been completely different. And so grace saves us from ourselves. Grace also, it saves us from death. We are very good at messing things up. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, which means made right, By his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, what does this mean? That naturally in life what we do leads us to eternal death. Let that sink in. What you're good at, what I'm good at, is causing eternal death in our lives. But what God does in his natural state and his natural perspective is giving life. God is good at giving life to all of his creation, to all of his people, while we are good at causing death. And God's grace leads us to success. God is not angry with us. God is not angry at you. He's not angry at me. The Bible says in 2 Peter 3.9 that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, God is willing that we are made right, we are a church word here, reconciled to himself. God is willing that we succeed in life. It is the enemy of our soul that wants to see us set up for failure and for compromise. See, what does this grace look like in our lives? See, grace is so much more than just a prayer before a meal. Grace is forgiving people who have hurt us. Grace is God healing those who are terminally ill. Grace is us serving and giving of ourselves. Grace is us sharing our faith. Grace is boundaries around our lives that position us to succeed and not to fail. We're good at living without boundaries, but grace causes us to put boundaries around our life when the enemy would want us to get into a compromising situation. Grace says, no, look the other way and run. See, grace is prison for some and a pardon for others. I sat in a room full of 15 to 17-year-old juvenile delinquents yesterday in Gainesville, Florida. And God's grace was juvenile for their lives. Why? Why? Because a change of pace for them, plus a change of place, is the hope that they might have a different perspective. And that's what happens in our life, is sometimes God's grace allows us to get into undesirable circumstances so that we can have a different perspective. Why? Because it's a change of pace, a change of place, so that we can have a change of perspective. Sometimes our perspective needs to shift on a few things. And God has to put you in prison. God has to put you in financial rough spot. God has to put your marriage in a certain situation. God has to put you in teen challenge. God might have to put you in whatever area he needs to put you in so that you can have a perspective shift you in your life because a change of pace plus a change of place equals a change of perspective. Grace is him working everything together for our good. And his glory. Romans 8, 28. Pastor Chris has taught us all growing up and, and, and always said that for everything God does, the enemy wants to create a darn good looking counterfeit for everything. So what the devil does when God creates grace is the enemy creates compromise. Because grace and compromise can seem very close at times because if I Go and do this and fall into this. Well, God's got grace for me. No, 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 no. that's compromise. And compromise is a sin because we're beginning to think out in advance the things that we might fall into, which is the sin of compromise. It's not grace. You see, grace is meant to lead us. The kindness of God is what the scripture says is meant to lead us into repentance, not into a compromising situation. So when you begin to question whether you should do something or you shouldn't do something, you're already starting to embrace the sin of compromise in your life, not weighing out the things of grace that it might be in your future. You're not a fortune teller of God's grace on your life. God's grace is to cover those things that haven't already happened, not for you to proactively plan sin in your life. That's called iniquity. And it's those with iniquity in their lives that won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. And it's grace that covers us 
from the sins that we have already committed. So the enemy, he presents compromise into our life, which seems very close to grace at time if we don't have the right head that we're thinking with. If we don't have our mind in the right place that we are, are thinking. Romans 2 says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Romans 5 says where sin exists, grace abounds all the more. Some people say, hey, the more I sin, the more grace is there. Well, the more cancer in your body, the more chemo that's there too. We don't want more of those things in our life if they are not necessary, right? We want God to work in our lives and in spite of our lives and to draw us through those situations. And so that when sin does exist, grace abounds all the more, meaning that sin has no hold. Sin has no chance. Sin can't cover grace because darkness cannot stand in light's presence. When light exists, darkness flees. And so that's what it's saying, is that where grace exists, where sin exists, grace abounds all the more. Meaning the devil ain't got a chance. The enemy doesn't have a chance. That when it's David and Goliath, the odds might not look like they're in your favor, but they're ever in your favor. Amen? They are there, and God can work in spite of every situation. See, it's the grace of God that leads us to repentance, whereas compromise is of the devil, and it leads us straight into sin so if grace leads you towards god then compromise leads you away from god grace tells you to steer clear when compromise tells you to entertain those things see often people entertain wickedness and if they fail they think well god is gracious and he will forgive me and and even church people at time they'll say hey you know it's not going to be that bad maybe it, it, it'll all be all right it won't no that's compromise Stay away from compromise. Don't compromise your values. Don't compromise your faith. Don't compromise what God has already brought you through. Don't compromise your testimony. Don't compromise what God has delivered you and brought you out of just to entertain or to enter a situation that you know you should not be in the first place. Grace tells you to steer clear of those things. You see, we just talked about this in, in Sunday school, that the sin of compromise is like this. Eating one hot and ready Krispy Kreme donut isn't going to kill you, right? But eat one hot and ready Krispy Kreme donut every day for a year. Go step on those scales and see what's happened, right? It's going to look a lot different. It is going to eventually kill you if you ate a hot Krispy Kreme donut every day. And I wanted a Krispy Kreme donut right after we talked about that because it sounded good. <laughs> but it's, it's that process. Well, it, it won't hurt me. Just one. Just one time. I won't be in that situation. Just, just one time. And Krispy Kreme was Pastor Cecil's favorite place. <laughs> Grace not only saves us, it instructs us. Titus 2.12, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Paul understands the reality of the environment Titus is living in. And we're going to go into a little bit of a history lesson here. I think that sometimes we disconnect history from the Bible way too much because the day and age that Paul was living in was a very immoral culture Titus pastors a church on the island of Crete Crete is a large island in the Mediterranean Sea and uh, it's believed to be the birthplace of three pagan deities of the Greeks Zeus Artemis and Apollo Crete was a very very significant to the pagans and to Greek mythology and not only that it was an important center of commerce in the Mediterranean See, Crete was positioned as a midpoint in between Europe, uh, the Middle East, and Africa. And so it was an easy shipping stop and shipping port for uh, people to come through and stay uh, when they needed to stay or harbor their ships. And so uh, not only do you have all of the Greek mythology and the pagan religion, you have uh, shipping and where they're shipping their sailors, right? Do we need to go any further there? Um, so if you had an environment with that, uh, with that environment, it's an island full of corruption, lacking morality and purity. So what does it mean Paul wasn't writing to Titus who lived in a bubble? Paul wasn't writing to a man or to a church where there was no temptation. Paul wasn't writing to a man where everything was holy and sanctified in the environment he lived in. Paul was writing to a people who existed during one of the most morally perverse times of human history during the Roman era. Recently I was in Rome and in the Colosseum I uh, was reading and was just disgusted by things that were going on in Rome and in the areas that it occupied and one of the Romans said and it's stated there in the Colosseum uh, talking about their sexuality that women are for business and boys are for pleasure. 
That's the environment that Paul is writing these letters in. An environment that I think CNN would even hesitate to fully cover because the practices were so inappropriate. The challenges then were greater than our challenges now. The immorality was so much greater then. The sexual perversion so much greater at pagan temples in, in Athens and in, in Rome, there would be thousands of people that would gather together to, to participate in these giant orgies where just immorality uh, and wickedness ran rampant. Where shrines and sacrifices were done. And so you get the environment that exists. So don't use the excuse that, well, I live in a different age than what they lived in. And so it's a little bit harder today to live as a Christian than it was then. No. No, 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 no. It was very, very tough. They were actually killed for their faith. We don't experience that here in the U.S. They lived in a very sexually perverse world where there was nudity everywhere. It was rampant in the streets, people walking around, statues everywhere. We can't have that excuse because they were writing to a, a very realistic perspective when he's telling him to renounce ungodliness, when he's telling the church to renounce ungodliness and the worldliness that it trains us to renounce these passions. He's speaking on our level. Why? Because sin is fatal. It's a fatal disease. And when someone finds out they have something that is fatal inside of them, do they live okay with it? No. No, you go to an inexhaustible link to get rid of whatever is fatal inside of you. People go bankrupt on doctors trying to find a cure. People spend hours praying and crying, weeping and calling friends to, to have family members begin to pray with them when they have a fatal disease. But isn't it strange that sin is eternally fatal but often receives exponentially less time, money, and effort allocated to what is spiritually fatal in our lives? I want you to look at this in perspective. According to the Center for Medicare and Medicaid, America spent $3.3 trillion on health care in 2016. According to the Center for Substance Abuse and Mental Health, America spent right at $200 billion on mental health in 2016, which is part of that $3.3 trillion. So 95% of medical expenditures was spent on getting the body well, and only 5% was spent on getting the mind well. We're not done yet. As of 2012, 50% of Americans had one or more chronic illnesses. According to the CDC, these deadly diseases are all preventable and attributed to people's lifestyle. In 2014, seven of the top ten causes of death were associated with chronic diseases, meaning those deaths could have been prevented. So what is wrong? Is it the body or is it the mind? You see, I think we do the same thing that so often we are far more concerned with treating our illness than eradicating our illness. That we spend 95% of our funds to treat an illness when it could be eradicated with just some simple mind change and life change. And I would hate to say the same thing, that oftentimes we use grace the very same way. As a prescription to treat a disease when it was meant to eradicate it. Grace was sent as a prescription to eradicate a disease, not just treat a disease. It's not just there for us to treat our sin and move on with life. So if most of these diseases are lifestyle induced, then what is going on? People aren't thinking straight. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, he takes that out a holistic approach. He talks about both the body and the mind. The mind has to be renewed that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. So grace, what does it do? It teaches us to renew our mind. Paul says grace trains us to renounce the ungodliness and the worldly passions. Grace just doesn't deal with the effects of sin. It eradicates the root of sin. So stop treating sin like your mistress. Knowing that it is wrong but delightfully indulging while trying to treat it with the medicine of grace. No, what you're actually doing is treating it with a medicine of compromise, the enemy's counterfeit of grace. Grace trains us to renounce the ungodliness and worldly passions in our life. 
What does this do when we renounce the wrong things? It positions us for success. Grace, Titus 2.12 says, trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, God's not going to tell you to do something without giving you the grace to do so. See, there's an old saying that God doesn't call the equipped. He equips those who are called. Meaning that you don't have to have everything perfect and in line and in order for God to uh, call you. That once he calls you, he will equip you to do the very thing that he's called you to do. Grace trains us to live self-control. Charles Swindle said, I am convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% of how I react to it. See, the more we understand and live out this grace, the more self-control we have in our lives. Meaning life would be so much better for all of us. Grace trains us to exercise self-control. Some people think that grace allows us to exercise less control. No, it's funny that the Bible teaches the exact opposite. That grace trains us to live self-controlled lives. Controlled in our temper. Controlled in our eating habits, our exercise, our attitude, our sexuality, our hobbies, every aspect of life, grace, it trains us to live self-controlled lives. It also trains us to live upright, or another word is honorable lives. And when we think of honorable people, we need not look any further than Pastor Cecil, who lived an upright and honorable life before all of us. See, we've heard from so many thousands of people how he's impacted their lives, and um, it, it it's touched all of us. It really has. It's touched all of us in a special way when we see a man live an honorable life here in the pulpit and out in the world and at home. That you don't have to separate or have a split personality that he is who he says he is and he lived consistently before us all. And that's what the Bible says is for us to train and have an honorable or upright life. Or Billy Graham, another honorable man who lived uprightly before all of us. Grace trains us to live godly lives. See, if we are made in the image of God, then grace trains us to live lives that represent Him well. We are all, each person that live on the face of this earth, are made in the image of God. And grace comes and it remodels and changes and transforms our lives so we represent that image. We represent who God is well to this world around us. That allows us to See his kingdom established in and through our lives. 2 Timothy 3.12 tells us that all those who live godly lives will be persecuted. And grace gives us the strength so that when those persecutions come, it gives us the courage and the ability to live for God in the world, the broken world that is around us. It's not always easy to live a life filled with grace. So I heard this a long time ago, and I don't remember who said it. But what the law required, grace required so much more. Grace required so much more. And it's there to pick us up for when we fall. And Paul finishes exhorting us, saying in verse 3 of Titus chapter 2, Wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. See, grace teaches us to be a pure people, zealous for good works. If our worship team would come. This morning as we were in our heart class uh, with eConnect, we were talking a little bit, mentioned it a couple weeks ago about how Jesus, when he draws us in to him, he draws us into relationship with him. He draws us into covenant with him, and he displays that grace to us. It doesn't just stop there. That's why the Bible says of people who are zealous for good works. That's every person that's experienced grace, right? So when God gives us grace, in one hand, he gives us responsibility in the other hand. Right? 
He gives us responsibility on the other hand that when we reach out to take grace from God, He's not just going to give us the keys to the car without giving us a lesson on responsibility, right? He's going to teach us. He's going to show us. He's going to be the example. There's only one example in Scripture that we are told to follow in, and that was when he was bending down and washing the feet of the disciples, and he tells us to do likewise in serving others. So when God gives us grace in one hand, he gives us responsibility in the other hand to be people who not just do good works, but to be zealous. Zealous for good works. Guess what the Romans did to Jewish zealots? They killed them. Why? Because they were bold. They lived out what they believed in. They lived it out to the fact that they would die for them, die for what they believed in. It was at Masada 2,000 years ago where a group of Jewish zealots get up onto a hill and rather to be taken captive by the Romans, they wanted to die as free men living for the cause, fighting for the cause, believing in the cause which they were following after. And that's where they died on that hill. And so Jesus, or Paul, writes to the church that Titus is pastoring saying, be a people. That when you receive grace, you are zealous for good works. Zealous for it. Not just do good works. Often we hear it, do good works, do good works, do good works. No, but he says be emphatic about it. Let it be an intricate part of your life. Let it be something that is wired into your DNA. That you are zealous for good works. That you are looking for the opportunity to serve. You are looking for the opportunity to give. You are looking for the opportunity to love like Jesus loved. You are looking for the opportunity to sacrifice like Jesus would have sacrificed. Of people who have experienced grace are zealous zealous for the good works that Jesus prepared for us to walk in in advance. The path has already been created. I prayed earlier that the steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. And so when we experience grace, we become righteous. And guess what that means? Your steps are now ordered. So you don't walk where you want to walk. You don't do what you want to do. You do what grace requires you to do. You live how grace requires you to live. You are zealous. You are a zealot for good works because you've experienced the unmerited favor of God. The unmerited favor. Something we haven't done a thing to get. That's where it happens at. Don't be in the religious camp. That you do everything you do to earn grace. Don't be in the heathen camp that believe God's grace is able to, or not able to be forfeited. But be there in the middle of people who have experienced grace and are driven by grace and are zealous for good works. If you would, close your eyes and bow your heads. If you're in this room tonight and you're in the state of brokenness and sin, you, said, I, I, you just say, I need God's grace. That's it. I just need forgiveness. I need that experience at the cross. I want to experience the, the mercy and the love and the forgiveness that grace allows to flow from Calvary, if that's you and you're here in this room tonight and you need life change in Jesus, that your life is a mess or things you're dealing with is a, a mess, family you're dealing with is a mess and you just need Jesus to come in and radically change your life, if that's you, I want you to slip up your hand. Say, I need him. I need him tonight. Amen. Thank you for hands that are going up. Anybody else that would say, I just need God's grace in my life to forgive me, to cleanse me, to create in me a new heart, a restored heart, to restore a relationship with Him. If that's you and you slipped up your hand, I want you to stand up to your feet real quick. Come on, stand up. There's several hands that went up. I want us to celebrate with them. Come on, let's clap and celebrate with them. I want you to begin to just come to the front. And we're going to pray with you. We were going to pray with you. Come on, just come make your way down to the front. If our altar team would begin to come and, and pray with these guys and uh, girls that have said, I just need God's grace in my life. Maybe you're in this room tonight 
and you've been confusing grace and compromise in your life. You've been confusing the reality of what these two are and you're trying to substitute and you need God to just work in your life and remove that from your life. I want you to begin to come to the altar. I want you to come to the altar and just begin to pray. Or maybe you're in this room tonight and you're at the point that you say, you know, I've experienced grace. I've received it in the one hand. But I need to be zealous for the good works that God is calling me to do. I need clarity in ministry. I need clarity in what God is trying to order my steps to do. I need vision for the road that's ahead. If that's you, I want you to begin to come to the altar tonight. Come on to the altar. Let's pray. and Let's pray that God will give you that wisdom. The Word says that if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask the Father who is the giver of all wisdom. So if you would stand to your feet tonight, come on with us. Jesus, 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 Jesus. The worship team is going to lead us in a song as we begin to pray with those. Jesus.
sustained our life. Grace is able to wash us. we get painted this picture in our mind that there's a God upstairs who's just angry. No. There's a God upstairs that loves you. That sent His Son to draw you into covenant relationship, covenant walk with you. And He loves you. And He's not willing that any should perish. Two things before we are dismissed tonight. That is if you came forward and committed your life to Christ or committed your life to saying, God, I want further clarity in my life, further vision for ministry or something that God is calling you to. Um, if our pastors would just slip up their hand, I know Pastor mentioned, uh, Pastor Chris mentioned it earlier. Uh, come and find one of us before you leave tonight so that we can get you on the right track for what God is doing in your life. If there's a, if you just recently tonight, you made a, a dedication to the Lord and dedicated your life, uh, we want you to fill out a card so you can get connected to baptism and to our Faith Forward class. But we want to see you grafted and plugged in and be intentional. Now, the second thing is, if all of our ushers could get to the back door, I just spoken uh, really heavily on the end about being zealous for good works. And we're going to give you your first opportunity to be zealous for good works tonight. Is uh, We forgot and did not take up a love offering for our missionaries. And so I want to encourage you that 100% tonight of you be zealous for the responsibility that God has placed in your hand by doing something. If it's a dollar, if it's five dollars, if it's a thousand dollars, do whatever God has placed in your hand to do tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this evening. We thank you, God, that we get together to worship you and to sing about you, to talk about you, to rejoice with you, to cry, God, to pray, to intercede, to see lives touched, changed, and transformed. And so, Father, I pray that we would take your word with us tonight, that it would change us and transform every aspect of our lives, that we know that when we have been in the presence of the Lord, we can be changed for all of eternity, so that when we walk out of these doors, we are ready to be the salt, the light that you have called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for being with us tonight.